0: Welcome to the 262nd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I'm very glad to talk with sociologist Deborah Carr about older adults and the stress of COVID-19. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, April 20th, 2021, there are 3,035,771 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States from COVID-19 has now reached 568,277. In Canada, 23,707 people have lost their lives to COVID-19. In Mexico, 32,003 people have died from COVID-19. I'm also noting here, in case you haven't heard, and also for the archival record of COVID calls, that police officer Derek Chauvin was found guilty today, in fact, just a few moments ago, of the 2020 murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that reading now. The headline is, From Starvation to Overdose, Coronavirus's Hidden Toll Emerges in Colorado's Death Data. This is by John Daly. The story appeared February sixteenth, two 2021, in Colorado Public Radio News. In 2020, COVID-19 ravaged the state's nursing homes, forcing an end to visitation by family and friends and lockdowns of residents. That, in turn, appears to have contributed to a hidden toll from the disease for some Colorado seniors, starvation. As many as 100 more seniors than expected, most of them in nursing homes, essentially stopped eating in 2020 and died of what is clinically termed nutritional deficiencies on state death certificates. COVID-19 has now officially claimed more than 6,000 lives in Colorado, but as state health officials finish compiling records from the deadliest year in state history, Hundreds of additional deaths, which appear to have at least an arm's length connection to the pandemic, are becoming apparent. They include those 100 out of 347 people who died last year of starvation, and at least some of those who died of parasitic diseases, drug overdoses, Alzheimer's, and liver disease, too. All those causes of death experienced double-digit percentage increases in 2020 in Colorado. That's above the average number of deaths from the causes in the three years prior to the start of the pandemic. They are all part of 8,222 excess deaths, so-called, in 2020, above the average for the three previous years. Early on in the pandemic, we were calling this COVID collateral damage, said Dr. Kyle Legat. A family medicine physician in Lone Tree, Colorado. COVID has disrupted the healthcare landscape beyond the direct impact of people who have been diagnosed or gotten sick from COVID. It's sad. It's disheartening. In 2020, 46,808 people died in Colorado, the most ever recorded in one year in the state, and a 21% increase over the average number of deaths for the three previous years. The percentage increase is indicative of a mass casualty event the biggest one-year spike in many decades and the largest since at least the 1918 pandemic. I think the closest analog would be the influenza pandemic back in the early 20th century, said Kirk Bowl, the manager of the state's vital statistics program. I don't believe we've seen anything to this magnitude in essentially the last century that would compare. And while it has been well known that COVID-19 has been hardest on seniors, The hidden toll beyond deaths caused directly by the disease is only now coming to light. Eileen Doherty, executive director of the Colorado Gerontological Society, which advocates for the state's elders, described the numbers as horrible. But given how hard the pandemic has hit the state's older population, I guess I'm surprised the increase in deaths is not higher, to be honest with you, she said. According to the state's own pandemic website, People over 80 account for 54% of the state's COVID-19 deaths, while making up just 3% of the population. Those between 70 and 79 represent 24% of the deaths, though they're 6% of the population. Death certificates from 2020 are still being counted and causes certified, meaning that the official totals don't yet match the more than 5,500 deaths from COVID-19 the state has identified from hospitals, physicians, and coroners but it is already likely that the disease caused by the coronavirus will be the state's third leading cause of death last year after malignant tumors and heart disease. What's there to live for? Why am I here? That's what one 86 year old man living alone in Thornton, Colorado recently told Jayla Sanchez Warren who leads a regional agency on aging as she tried to help him get vaccinated against COVID-19. He was struggling to get a vaccine and was frustrated. His wife had died, I think, three years ago. He didn't have family in the area, she said. He was feeling this malaise. She said his despair is a typical symptom of a failure to thrive, a term many experts in aging use to describe what they've been seeing a lot of this past year of the pandemic. Other symptoms include isolation, loneliness, and depression. That's often followed by a lack of desire or inability to eat or get nutritious food for yourself. And it appears, experts say, to be a factor in the sharp increase in the number of Coloradans who died in 2020 from nutritional deficiencies. It's just hard to overestimate the impact that COVID has at every level on facilities, on staff, on residents, on families, said Dr. Gregory Gam, a geriatrician and chief medical officer for Vivage Senior Living, which operates about 40 long-term care and assisted living facilities in Colorado. It's been almost a year since we've really allowed people to come in and visit, he said. Due to strict rules aimed at limiting the spread of the virus, it's also been a year since those residents could eat together, often their main source of interaction and human contact. That isolation is just an enormous impact, Gam said. In many facilities, he said, 20 to 25% of patients have either died or moved out since the start of the pandemic. And the coronavirus, in part due to stricter rules, has taken a toll on the ability to admit new patients. The stress of the pandemic has also hit staff members, who are dealing with many more public health measures to keep themselves and the residents safe. That's not to mention seeing some residents die and worrying about picking up the virus themselves. All of these factors, he said, contribute to residents struggling. A lot of younger people might overeat to treat their depression, but for older folks, it's the opposite. Tend not to eat. You lose interests. You lose interest in everything and you quit eating, Gam said, noting the state's increase in deaths from nutritional deficiencies is one likely result. So I'm not surprised by that, he said. You isolate people month after month after month. You don't get to see your family. You don't get to come in and out of the facility with activities. People get depressed, Gam said. Okay. I'm going to turn to my conversation for today. I've been really looking forward to this discussion. Let me introduce you to Deborah Carr. Deborah Carr is professor and chair of the sociology department at Boston University. She's written more than 100 articles and book chapters on topics related to aging, health, and stress. Her recent books include Worried Sick, How Stress Hurts Us and How to Bounce Back, and Golden Years, Social Inequalities in Later Life, She was editor-in-chief of the Journal of Gerontology, Social Sciences, from 2015 to 2020, and her work has been featured in a number of media outlets, including the New York Times, NBC Nightly News, and USA Today. Deborah Carr, thanks for making time to join me on COVID calls today.
1: Great. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I'd like to start the way I generally do, which is just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there today.
1: Sure, I am in Providence, Rhode Island, and um, the rates are kind of flattening. Um, The rates of vaccination are going very well. And Rhode Island started what some consider slowly because it explicitly took kind of a social justice approach and first targeting those communities of greatest need and then scaling up. And completely unrelated to my work as a sociologist, I actually volunteer at the vaccine clinics doing paperwork and registering people. And it's just a full swath of the population, every age, every background. So I think things are going as well as can be expected. Um, But of course, there are always a couple hiccups along the way with rates going up and down.
0: What's happening on campus?
1: Campus is very quiet. Um, Maybe not today specifically, because today is a historic day of sorts in the United States, given the recent verdict, but um, it's very quiet. The students have the opportunity of taking classes live or remotely, but the vast majority have chosen to take remote classes, even if they're in their dorm. So I go to campus one day a week, but it feels very quiet. Um, But we are tested once a week on campus, and we have a vaccination requirement for fall when the semester goes back. So the campus has been um, very, very responsive and very, very careful in how we uh, bring students onto campus and the way we will be teaching in the fall.
0: It's interesting. You mentioned being involved with the vaccination effort. I was talking with the uh, writer John Mualem last week, and he described the same thing, but way out on the West Coast in, in Washington. And I wonder, could you say a little bit about what it's meant to you to be involved with that?
1: Yeah, it's been really meaningful. And and I should say, again, my partner works in healthcare, so he actually can vaccinate them. And so he started doing the physical vaccinations. But then there's a real need for those on the administrative side and those who can use computers, who can work quickly, do inventory. And it's been really interesting because of how it's been done. So lately, it's been the mass vaccination clinics where I've been volunteering, where they have anywhere, you know, up to 1,500 a day coming in to other ones that we've done that we bring the vaccines to nursing homes, right? To group homes for young people with um, spectrum disorders, for instance, to low-income housing developments. And that, for me, as a sociologist who studies aging and inequality, is particularly meaningful because on the ground, I can see how it's done, right? Sometimes these nursing homes are crowded. Sometimes the apartment complexes that are subsidized are crowded and not the most pristine environment, but still the folks working on site there, are so committed to working with these communities and they're really well-organized rollouts that people will come down on time. If they forget their card, we'd send them back up to get their card. And so it's just kind of this combination of social justice, community spirit, and gratitude. People leave so grateful when they finally have their vaccines and especially that second shot when they feel they can re-engage with the world again. So it, it actually is a bit emotional, even though I'm just kind of sitting there with a prepmod device, getting people checked in.
0: I mean, thank you for that, for that insight and that description and, and just sort of building on the article I was reading earlier about what's going on in Colorado. Right. I mean, these mass vaccination moments may be some of the first times that seniors would have been together, I think, maybe in some of these larger groups over this past year.
1: They absolutely are, because people, you know, they cannot spend time with one another. Some barely leave the building, right, because they can't go out into the world. And so after we give the vaccines, people have to sit for 15 minutes, as you may know, or they have to sit for 30 minutes if they have some condition. And we space out the chairs so everybody's six feet apart. But people weren't leaving at 15 minutes or 30 minutes. They were sitting in their chairs for 45 minutes just talking and sharing recipes. and having kind of this grand old time in these properly spaced chairs after they got their shot, because it was an opportunity for them to re-engage with members of their community. So it was something that was kind of a little bit surprising. And we couldn't give them snacks, obviously, because you take off your mask and you, we couldn't do that in the public setting, but they just really were thrilled to see each other. And so that was kind of a surprising thing that we actually had to get people out of the waiting chairs so that we could bring in <laughs> the next batch of those who had been newly vaccinated.
0: Wow, that's so a time to move on. Clear the chair because exactly, we've got this next like, group come on, your fifty in. minutes
1: is up. We thought they would be out of there in twelve, but no, people were sitting and, and kind of schmoozing through, through the duration.
0: I've talked to guests nearly every day whose research is relevant to some aspect of what we've dealt with in this pandemic. I can't think of anybody I've spoken to um, before you whose work is as is as important as relevant as what we've mm-hmm. seen in this in this last year. The impact on um, seniors, aging populations, not only in the United States, but around the world has been, I mean, heartbreaking doesn't really capture it, infuriating, um, and so many questions. And so I want to just start, um, we can start anywhere you want, but one thing I'd like to start with is, is your book, Golden Years, and I should say it's Golden Years, question mark, Golden Years, Social Inequalities in Later Life, which received uh, the Kalish Innovative Publication Award from the Gerontological Society of America last year—quite um, mm-hmm. a year to win that award. Yes. I, I wonder if you could tell us a, about some of the findings in that book. Um, anywhere you'd like to start, but I mean, so much of it is necessary for help us to helping us to understand this broader impact for what seniors dealt with last year yeah. and this
1: absolutely. Year. And again, truth in advertising—I wrote that book before COVID. And I'm writing kind of another book now in the demography of aging, and I am writing it entirely differently because of the, the world has changed so much. But I think some of the key themes of golden years are just as relevant or even more so in the, the COVID era. And the theme of the book is that even though they, prior to COVID, there was this public perception that the older years were golden, right? If we turn on our television, we see prescription medication ads where white attractive older adults are on their yachts and they're playing golf and they're frolicking with their new prescription medication. And there's also kind of public outcry again about national resources, right? If older adults indeed have a 10% poverty rate and the poverty rate of children is 15%, for instance, if we have rising child poverty rates, why are we continuing to give social security and uh, Medicare to older adults, right? There's been this question about why are we giving resources to older adults? Many people have seen kind of the greedy geezers memes, the boomers, they're robbing our future from the millennials. And I thought that portrayal of older adults really missed the boat and it was overly nuanced. So overall, yes, 10% of older adults live. Beneath the federal poverty line in the United States. And if we look at white married older adults, especially white married men, it's about 3%. But when we look at women of color, if we look at women of color who are unmarried, the poverty rate is as high as 30 or 40%. And that is devastating. And so the argument in the book is that we can't just look at older adults as this monolithic population, but we really need to understand that some face much greater economic adversity than others, much greater physical adversity relative to others. And so that's why there is a question mark after the golden years in the book title. And those themes that inequality is is, uh, persistent in later life, another argument I make is that these inequalities don't magically come across on someone's 65th birthday. They are the end product of accumulating inequalities, going back to adulthood and adolescence and early childhood. And all of those themes are coming true in COVID. It's not all older adults, it's those who are lower income. Persons of color of any age have far greater rates of COVID they have their white counterparts. So I think this whole notion of intersectionality and that we sit in multiple categories, an age group, a gender group, a race or ethnic group, all of those things can either open up our, our possibilities for health, wealth and happiness, or foreclose it given these structural obstacles.
0: Just a, a couple of notes, maybe you can um, help set the stage a little bit. So When we're talking about older adults, are we talking about 65? I mean, is that a set research category at 65 years and up? Or is there some gray area around what we mean in our terminology there?
1: Yeah, that is actually a surprisingly profound question. Um, technically, most research in the United States, and actually most other places, uses 65 as the demographic cut point for old age. So when we talk about older adults, it tends to be 65 plus, just as our demographic category but there is a a real strong recognition that people age at different pieces, right? If you're a professor, you're sitting in a chair all day, we have actually quite lovely lives. We are not inhaling toxic chemicals on the job. We live in safe neighborhoods. And so there's a lot of research showing that biological aging actually is sped up for people who have faced more economic, social and environmental adversities. So the body of a 40 year old homeless person could be comparable to a 70 year old white collar worker. And that's part of the reason why we're seeing higher rates of COVID at younger ages among those who come from lower income backgrounds and from ethnic and racial communities that have faced systemic racism.
0: Well, thank you for that. I mean, that's a really interesting point to make. And um, also just a little bit about sort of um, conceptions of old age. So I mean, we have that 65 as a threshold in terms of the way the government looks at things. Um, but retirement age and, and the actual age at which people retire, um, is those are not perfectly aligned. I mean, I think of my grandfather, of, of both of my grandfathers, um, uh, my mother's father and my father's father. I have other grandfathers since they divorced and remarried. So I have four grandfathers, actually, I should say, but all of them, actually. Um, lived significantly longer than their retirement age. Wow. And so they were, you know, greatest generation, um, you know, men who were primary breadwinners in their family. So that sort of comports with what you might expect demographically for white men mm-hmm. of that era. And they all retired on time. And then they lived a long time after that. And so some of our notions of what aging means and how that connects to age 65 and uh, sort of the life course it didn't seem to fit what they thought their old age was going to be like, mm-hmm. and so to come back to your term, golden years. Yeah. I mean, those golden years, I think for them, they thought would be maybe five years.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So I wonder if you could say a little bit just about how those have been. So those expectations have been shifting, and how that might factor into some of these things you're talking about.
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic <laughs> question. Retirement has absolutely changed, and has again become this kind of stratified experience, and. You know, back in the old days of your grandparents or my grandparents, um, some there was forced retirement, right? Some places, workplaces, would politely push a worker out the door at age 65. Today, very few industries have forced retirement. Um, airline is one. They have certain restrictions for airline pilots of a certain age, for instance. So people aren't being quite pushed out the door anymore. Um, each generation can kind of collect their full Social Security at slightly older ages, because there's a recognition that for many people, 65, you're still healthy and vital, and you don't need to retire and then be sitting in retirement for 20, 25 years, right, with no gainful activity. So, you know, for my generation, probably yours, because we're probably around the same age, it's age 67, for instance, that we can collect our full benefits. Um, So that's just a little bit about kind of the legal benefit side with changes in Social Security. But, There's this really interesting paradox with Social Security today. It's that those people who have enough money in the bank that they can retire at 65, they don't need to work, they have enough savings, those are precisely the people who hold jobs that are designed for aging bodies, like professors and lawyers and bankers. Many of us could afford, probably, maybe, to retire at 65 and then have enough money to sustain us for the long haul. But we keep working often because we like our work. At the other end of the spectrum, we have blue collar workers, right? waiters, waitresses, those working in grocery stores, those working in warehouses who can't necessarily afford to retire the day they turn 65 or 62. Yet at the same time, their jobs are not designed for aging bodies right? And so we're seeing this kind of real difficult situation for those who work in physical labor jobs, maybe who don't have the savings, and their jobs don't necessarily provide them the private pensions, right? Academics, you know, and and professionals have things like TIAA craft, so we actually have pensions. But generally speaking, the more physically arduous and low-paying your job, the less likely you are to even get a private pension. So those least- Physically equipped to work long periods are the ones who are forced to do so because they don't have the wherewithal to sustain themselves for what could be a very long retirement.
0: Just to follow up a little bit more about some of your findings in the book, how important are social networks to senior citizens?
1: They're very important. You know, we've been talking a lot about kind of the economics so far, but the importance of social networks just cannot be understated. And social ties, you know, the word social network, is kind of jargony, right? We use it, but it basically means your friends, your family, but even these more distal ties, your neighbors, you know, the, the business people you see, your hairdresser, your barber, because one, they provide emotional uplift. But also their eyes and ears on on older adults. It can make sure that someone's coming in regularly for their haircut, making sure that they come in without bruises on their arms, because we know that abuse has actually picked up during the pandemic. Um, but those networks are so important, um, so much so that in the UK, the United Kingdom, you might know that a couple of years ago, they appointed their first national minister of loneliness, right? A government official charged with making sure that people had friendship ties, and if not friendship ties, visitors coming by, Um, because loneliness or lack of ties is linked with elevated risk of pretty much every cause of death and depression and anxiety. So being alone has real physical and emotional costs for older adults.
0: You touched on this a little bit earlier, but maybe you could say a bit more about the differential experiences along gender lines for older adults as well.
1: Yeah, there are so many. And in terms of social relationships, it's very interesting that social ties for men and women actually can be good and bad. You know, most women tend to have, especially older women, have more networks and more people they can rely on for, for a bunch of reasons. But one is women are considered the kinkeeper. That's the term that anthropologists use that Women are the ones who arrange the parties and the dinners, and so oftentimes after their husband dies, they still have their female friends. They have close ties with their children and their nieces and nephews. So women are actually really quite well integrated in ways that men aren't. I mean, men in heterosexual unions tend to rely almost wholly on their wife as their lifeline. The wife is the one who calls the kids and then puts dad on the phone. So, right, we all have seen this often in our own lives. So when the wife dies, husbands often have very few ties or it's harder for them to re-engage. So, so we have those different patterns that women are generally have larger networks and closer and warmer networks of broader base than husbands. But the the downside of that is women often have more people who, to whom they have to give care. And so that can be very draining. In low-income communities, those older women are sometimes taking in grandchildren and caring for them when their own children cannot. So so relationships on the whole are a really great thing, but sometimes they can be a drain on older adults and especially older women's time and energy and emotional energy. Let's
0: bring in another one of those intersectional points and, and talk a bit about what you've discovered in terms of race.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for race in general, you know, these are broad, uh, you know, generalities, but um, older adults uh, who are Black and Latino generally report more extensive and closer family ties and more fictive kin, again, which is a term for those people who are like family, even if they're not biologically related. You know, it could be a best friend. It could be a member of one's church community, for instance, these larger networks. So, So there often is a very high level of social support and engagement. And you see the data on the younger side as well, that kind of adult children who are Black and Latinx actually report, more so than whites, feeling this sense of kind of commitment or obligation to care for mom or dad or grandma or grandpa. So there is a very rich social support. Um, But with that, again, comes social obligations. So one of the most rapidly growing family categories over the past 20 or 30 years has been what we call custodial grandparents. So it's usually a grandma who becomes the full-time caregiver to a grandchild. And usually it's precipitated by something difficult in the family. The The child's parent, meaning the older adult's son or daughter, might be incarcerated. They might have died prematurely. They might have addiction problems or financial problems. So already a stressful situation that often comes out of economic and racial injustice. So here you have an older adult coping with whatever problems beset their child and now being the full time parent to a young child who often has a lot of energy, who might bring home germs from school because we all know that's what kids do. And if, you know, your kid comes home with a cold and you're a 30 year old mom, that's one thing. The grandchild comes home with a cold and your 70-year-old grandma with a declining immune function, it's something quite different. So, again, that intersectionality of uh, you know, race and gender in class all can create a, just a series of challenges for some older adults.
0: But just to make a note, these are all findings that you uh, wrote up and published in your book, which came out in 2019, Golden Years, Social Inequalities in Later Life. Just to sort of pause at that moment, what were some of the policy um, implications, do you think, of this work or even specific policies that you advocated as a result of this work?
1: Yeah, great. Good question. I should say, even though I summarize all of these findings in my book, many of them were discovered by other researchers. So shout out to the many researchers whose work is cited. Um, yeah, I, I talk a lot about policy in the final chapter of the book. And one thing I try to make really clear is that it's not just old age policies that we need to remedy these problems. Mm-hmm. We need, of course, Social Security. We need to maintain Social Security and ensure that those living in the lowest um, economic strata have benefits and bring them up above the poverty line. Right. We need Medicare. We need uh insurance for older adults of low income. But that's not enough, right? We need policies going back to early childhood, right? Things like Head Start that help all children to get a start in life that allows them to have the education and economic resources that will help them to grow old under conditions of comfort. So I talk a lot about policies that that bear on the lives of younger people, whether it's food stamp or SNAP programs or early childhood interventions. I think that's something that's really important. The other are more effective family leave programs. In the United States, we have the Family and Medical Leave Act, which applies to only a relatively small sliver of old all workers, right? Those who work in larger companies. And so whatever we can do to help caregivers, right? Both kind of adults who are caring for their aging parents But as well, some supports for these aging adults who might be caring for dying spouses or for children or for grandchildren. So I think it's important that when we think about old age policies, we recognize that the generations are all intertwined and that old age, you know, the way we turn out at 65, again, doesn't happen on our 65th birthday, but rather is the end product of the accumulation of inequalities that date back to birth and some even argue in utero.
0: I just want to follow up on that quickly. I mean, it's such a, an, an important point. I'm learning so much just talking with you today. Uh, so, but the way we advocate for policy in the United States is often around age groups. I mean, and often very tightly drawn sort of identity um, groups and identity politics in the United States sort of drives a lot of these kind of things. So I think of the American Association for Retired Persons, people, AARP, make sure I get that right. Um,
1: um,
0: one of the most important lobbying organizations uh, in the United States. Is their approach in line with what you're describing here? So they're not just advocating policies for people who are 65 and up, but actually for policies that affect people over the life course, so that when they do reach that older age, it's healthier.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think largely their mission is, again, older adults, but all of their materials emphasize things like caregiving, right? Mm -hmm. They recognize that older adults' lives are intertwined with the generations that, that come after them. And I think it's just strategic to think about aging policies is just embedded in these multi-generational ties. Because once we get into like the generation wars, you know, millennials saying, oh, don't help the boomers and the boomers saying, oh, the millennials aren't, you know, picking themselves up by their bootstraps. That kind of generational tension is nonsense because none of us is an individual who is free floating out there, completely divorced from other family members or other generations, we're all interconnected. And any policy or intervention that helps one generation will necessarily help the generation above or below. Right. If we have policies to help a 20 year old or 30 year old get rid of their educational debt, what does that mean? It means that their aging parent doesn't pick up that educational debt, as we know, happens. We know that for a lot of midlife adults, they are just strapped by their kids' educational debt. So that's a theme I have throughout that something that helps one generation will necessarily help the members of their family network.
0: I just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking with Deborah Carr today about aging populations and COVID, and we've been um, getting a sort of a background of things we needed to know before 2020 happened. So um, walk us through that year a little bit from your perspective, and I guess my first question with this is there it doesn't sound like anything that we saw would have been surprising to you last year based on the research that you were just describing, but maybe you can say a little bit more about some of the the nuances of what you were tracking over the year and how that fit into the research you'd already done about the challenges older populations face.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be so arrogant to say none of it surprised me, right? I think the disparities aren't surprising, right? The fact that lower income communities, those working in frontline jobs, um, Certified nursing assistants, again, those those jobs that are, are have a very high level of engagement with the community, um, it wasn't surprising that their rates were so much higher. Um, just the travesties of the nursing homes were kind of, the imagery was surprising just in the magnitude of the, the suffering, right? But I think those of us who study aging have kind of known that older adults, and not all older adults, not a 65-year-old, but once people really get to the advanced ages or 75 or 85, like you said at the beginning of the show, th- those are the older adults who are the most physically vulnerable, right? Because that's when they really start to have these declines in immune function, and they start to have the onset or presence of other conditions that render them more vulnerable to the virus. Um, so another thing that that the base wasn't surprising, but just the magnitude of the problem was, is just the problems with nursing homes, right? Nursing homes have struggled for a really long time. They've had labor shortages for a really long time because they're low-paying jobs, right? They rely heavily on women of color, for instance. So the shortage of workers in nursing homes has been around actually for a long time. Some of it is key to how they are funded, right? Um, uh, uh, public supports. But I think just the magnitude of the spread in nursing homes, I thought was just devastating to watch the magnitude of suffering of those who work with older adults. And when you look at it logically, of course, you're in congregate care settings, you know, the, the illness will spread from room to room. If you have a low paid CNA going to one nursing home and then go- giving private care elsewhere in the community, they may bring the virus in. So, once you start to take it apart, it wasn't surprising, but I think every single one of us was just moved by the magnitude of the suffering that we saw. And then the second tier was the efforts to contain the virus led to this whole new form of suffering, right? Was it a good idea to shut off all visitors? You know, there have been a lot of debates about that, but the social suffering and the isolation. It was horrible for the older adults and the family members who lost them, who could not have those final moments together and who could not say goodbye in person and had to do so, again, through windows of nursing homes and through iPhones, you know, that the nursing aides were holding up to the dying patients' faces.
0: I mean, just to follow up with kind of an obvious question, but um, couldn't nursing homes and shouldn't nursing homes management have thought about maybe not a pandemic of this scale? But events that would strike that would be of this type, and it didn't necessarily have to be a a public health event. It could be earthquake or or other kinds of disasters that would make similar kind of conditions um, come into place for a long period of time in which they would need to overcome some of these problems. They would need to make it so that relatives could visit safely from a distance or any of these other things that they seem to literally be discovering in the moment.
1: Yeah, and that's a great question. I, I don't have an answer because I don't know what the nursing home directors were thinking. I mean, I know that infectious disease experts for years have been saying it's a question of when, not if. We have right. another pandemic of some sort. I think maybe because so many of the other pandemics happened in other places, right? In the United States in particular, we sometimes think if something's happening overseas that may not bear on us, mm-hmm. um, this kind of localized thinking. Uh, But you're right, there have been other disasters, right? When there have been heat waves, right? There was that tragedy in Florida, what, about two, three, probably three to four years ago now. If a generator goes, for instance, and the AC goes, there have been other tragedies like this. Um, And I actually don't have a good answer as to why there haven't been these kind of emergency plans in place that could be executed, other than just kind of wishful thinking. And again, coming back to that theme of, lack of staffing, because they all struggle with high turnover and um, lack of kind of long-term um, staff members who maybe have that institutional memory to help uh, build and sustain some of these uh, safety programs.
0: Is is that some, that lack of staffing, other guests I've had on COVID calls have pointed to that as as well. Is that a function of just those being low-paying jobs, or there's some something else about that kind of work that leads to that really rapid turnover in those settings?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's largely not only the low pay, but um, kind of the lack of a mobility ladder. I think that's mm. part of it. Um, the other is it is physically draining work, right? Um, it, it's physically hard, kind of often lifting bodies. Um, Many who do hold those jobs, I mean, they care deeply. I mean, I've also volunteered at nursing homes at the beginning of the pandemic, kind of sitting with dying people. And you'll see these young CNAs working so hard, not only to deliver direct care, but sitting there for hours, holding the hands of dying people in their final day, again, holding up the iPhone. And so it's not that these workers don't care. It's not a a claim at all about the workers, but rather it's really physically hard work. I think that, that's part of it.
0: One of the discourses we heard early on in the pandemic, um, and it's a very unfortunate one, but, and it was a sort of a, I mean, it was like a, almost a eugenicist sort of argument that, um, you know, this was going to impact older people, The the this came out of, I think the Lieutenant Governor of Texas went on TV and said this, that, you know, the older generation just needs to make a sacrifice. And he sort of said, you know, they're the greatest generation, they can sacrifice. And so in a sense, the implication is if older people are the ones who are dying in society, we don't have as much to worry about because, hey, they're, they've already, you know, their best lives are behind them, best years of their lives are behind them. I mean, as a person who was very close to grandparents um, as a child, I found that, I mean, offensive doesn't even capture it. I was just mortified that a statement like that would be thought not to mention become part of our political discourse. And yeah. I guess I sort of, it's not even really a question for you. It's just a, something that struck me last year. And I wonder how you reacted to that.
1: Exactly the same as you did. Kind of horrified this notion like, oh, heck, they've been around long enough. And memes, you've seen these memes go around, like the calling COVID the boomer remover. I mean, it's, It's disgraceful. And if you applied the label remover to any other group other than older adult, it would be horrifying. It would be eugenics. Right. Um, So, yeah, I think it was absolutely appalling and feeds into, again, these generational divides that fail to recognize that we are all interconnected. Um, there's been a lot of writing. Um, you, know, you mentioned earlier, I edited a journal for a long time, and we got so many papers over the past few months about ageism, how ageism has spiked during the pandemic. It's either the beliefs are all of these old people are spreading the disease. We have to shut down our restaurants and bars and graduations because of the old people. And it, it was just wrongheaded, right? Older adults are more likely to die of COVID if they contract it, right, because of, and declining immune function, but every single age group has contracted COVID. And young people also spread COVID by being young and not masking appropriately. So scapegoating older adults, I think, was just awful for them. It was wrongheaded politically, and it, it perpetuated the notion that old age equals death. And and like we talked about earlier, 65, 70, you're pretty young and healthy. Heck, our president was elected at age 73. You know, there are examples, you know, Rubinstein gave his first piano recital at, you know, the second, this great recital at age 88, for instance, right? We see on a daily basis, people making political and economic and cultural and family contributions far beyond their 65th birthday. So this notion of "hell, let them die so we can reopen our bars and restaurants is is callous, to put it, uh, at the very least. Do
0: you see much evidence that um, social ties might have uh, strengthened during the pandemic in some ways for older adults? And I'm thinking here, again, it's just a personal example, but um, checking in on family members who may be distant from you, so it's not missing a visit to the nursing home, this is more just like calling your retired parents to check in on them or vice versa. I know for me, that certainly increased throughout yeah. the year. Now that's a tie that already exists, but um, maybe uh, it's possible that there's been a sort of new form of networking that's that's emerged throughout the pandemic. I wonder what you think about that.
1: I think there has been, and I think it's new and it's, it's kind of a new form. It's redirected, bringing mom and dad or grandma or grandpa to Zoom. And, (laughs) um, you know, some older adults are not necessarily comfortable with computers, but once they get on, you do hear, you know, having group meetings, right, multi-generational families all on Zoom, older adults who maybe couldn't have left their house earlier attending religious services via Zoom, or even doing exercise classes in their chairs, having college and high school reunions through Zoom, keeping up with grandkids who maybe wouldn't have been calling them so much earlier who are now on the computer, seeing new babies across, you know, the miles through Zoom. So I actually think even though a lot of us grouse about having to do everything virtually, it really opened new possibilities for many older adults. Um, So I think there actually has been a fair amount of good that has come out in terms of integration and learning. Um, But that's for people who already are, are socially networked, right? For those who are alone, it has been a, a difficult road to toe because they might not have someone to show them how to use Zoom. Um, one population that has a especially hard to kind of rural older adults or those who have weak internet connectivity, they have kind of no way of engaging in some of these um, programs of support that more well-off or well-connected older adults have.
0: That's interesting because that means it's that sharpens, it's going to potentially sharpen that inequality. Among the seniors, but and it, just to come back to the first part of that, um, what the answer you gave, I think that's really interesting because it pushes back on, you know, the idea that once people reach a certain age, they they can't adopt um, new patterns in life, they can't adopt new technologies, whatever it is. I it seems pretty clear that's just not true.
1: Yeah, and if they have the technology and they're willing to learn, they can. I mean, a lot of nervous about it, but once they're kind of walked through. Or if on Zoom, you can put captions on Zoom, that makes it a little bit easier for those who might have some hearing impairment. So for those who have the supports to learn or who live in a community actually where there are volunteer services, um, they are being kept engaged fairly well.
0: Just one question that's been on my mind about the larger impact um, of the pandemic, thinking forward a little bit. I wonder what you, how you think people who are, are considering leaving their homes and moving into other kinds of care facilities. It's a group home, maybe not a nursing home, but somewhere in between, you know, a a sort of assisted living or some variant of that. And there's so many versions of that kind of living arrangement out there today. But I wonder, do you think that people will pause and and really think much harder now about whether or not they want to move into these kind of congregate settings based on what we've seen in this last year?
1: Yeah, I I think... They will. And I think because it gives some types of long term care settings kind of a a bad name. I think those kind of, you know, 55 plus housing or places like the villages where people actually have their own unit and they have space. I don't expect that those will change dramatically. But I think those that uh, where people live in close proximity might diminish in popularity.
0: Just a quick reminder that you're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking with Deborah Carr today about older populations and the impact of the pandemic. I want to, um, Deborah, just come to another one of your books, and we can talk a little bit more generally now about stress. Um, this book is called "Worried Sick: How Stress Hurts Us and How to Bounce Back." So this is another um, aspect of your of your research, and I wonder if you could just uh, talk about that a little bit about how this work helps us understand this is not just um, age segregated in this sense, stress more generally, but how should we be thinking about the stress of living through a pandemic?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think everybody experiences stress in some way, shape, or form. And I think, you know, the important thing is that people find the coping techniques that work for them. They find the resources that work well for them. Um, But, Everybody experiences some stress, and especially in a pandemic. You know, in the stress world, we talk about kind of the primary stressor and then the secondary stressor. So the primary stressor is like the main thing, like COVID, it stresses people out, we worry about getting it, we're giving it to our family members. But secondary stressors then lead to this whole trickling of new stressors that are different for different people. For some, it's blending work, family, and homeschooling. For other, it's their job loss and the financial strains that that entails. In some cases, you know, an empty nest couple finds that their child is coming home from college or coming home from their new apartment in New York because they're afraid to be in the city. And so there were so many new experiences that were triggered by COVID that people just had a multitude of stressors. And that's all against this larger backdrop of, of kind of political and social unrest. I think for families of color, seeing just systemic racism in the worst possible form over the last couple of years. And uh, so there have been kind of these pressure cookers of stress that have been different for different communities, but I don't think there is a single person in the US or perhaps worldwide who has not experienced some additional strain or emotional wear and tear surrounding the pandemic and then the larger political, social and economic climate.
0: I have so many questions about this. So. How do you differentiate or understand sort of chronic stressors? So things maybe people have a long-term health condition or they have a a long-term difficult work situation. It could be in in any number of ways. How do you think about that in relation to stressors that pop up unexpectedly? Like all of a sudden, now I can't leave my house because there's a global pandemic going on.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. The two are often very intertwined. So sometimes there's like a chronic stressor, like a pandemic strikes, you lose your job, but then that often leads into those chronic stressors like financial strain or social isolation. You know, in, in general, the event kind of stressors, really going kind to of do a number on us on the short term in th- terms of things of like elevated heart rate and poor sleeping and self-medicating through things like alcohol or cigarettes or drugs that actually make things worse. But over time, kind of that initial impact tends to, to minimize a bit for many people. Chronic strains are hard because it's they're there all the time. And so, um, unless someone can really adapt or figure out a way or obtain resources to help them manage it, it's something that they're day in and day out. And so most of the data do show it's chronic strains are the ones that take a toll on all of our systems, right? Cardiovascular, cardiopulmonary and certainly our mental health because there's almost no escaping it.
0: Is there a sort of, um, I don't know a standard quantification model for stress, something that we can actually use to compare. I'm a historian, so I get very <laughs> nervous about such things. But, but I mean, it's, it is the kind of thing that if you wanted to be able to say ahead of time, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's chronic stress. This is where a person is on that scale. And then that would help direct resources in the middle of a disaster more effectively, I would think.
1: Yeah. That, that's a great question. Most of the measures, admittedly, are subjective. And that's kind of a blessing and a curse, right? But if someone perceives something to be so, it's real and it's consequences. And that's how social scientists kind of perceive their work. I mean, event stressors are very easy to measure. Did you have a death in the family? Did you lose your job or have an income decline in the past six months? So those are kind of factual indicators. Um, But another way to get at stress is something like, you know, how how frequently do you fight with your spouse? How frequently does your job drain your energy? So there are perceptions of how frequent or also perceptions of how intense, you know? Um, how, how much do you feel stressed by your marriage? You know, how much does your job worry you? So oftentimes we measure it in terms of kind of how often or how intense it is. And again, they are perceptions. Um, but these measures are pretty tried and true because they're all kind of kind of stu- statistical tricks people can do to uh, kind of figure out things like measurement error. But most of the measures are considered pretty good. And there's always some people who rate everything is very, very stressful. Um, but one way we get around that is we control sometimes statistically for something like negative affect, like a neuroticism measure, whereby mm-hmm. some people think everything is very troubling all the time. Others are more able to kind of roll with the punches. And so there are ways you can kind of statistically tease that out with appropriate measures and models.
0: Do you have a a very good understanding of how stress event-driven stress might have longer term implications that we might not understand so clearly? And I'm thinking here of post-traumatic stress, which a lot of times with disaster victims, people who live through war, um, people who even sometimes um, it can be much later, uh, this came up recently around Fukushima. We had the 10th anniversary of Fukushima, and some people only just now feeling that they can speak about that event 10 years later. I, I wonder how you, you know, sort of make sense of what can be a, a time interval in which people are suffering throughout, but we don't hear about that stress till later.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. There are some stressors that that only kind of hurt people when some time has passed, and maybe they're reacting physically to it, maybe they are experiencing things like elevated heart rate, for instance, but they are not reporting it yet as distressing, maybe because they've kind of pushed it down too deep. But you do often hear that people will not talk about a major stressor, whether it's veterans from World War II, certainly victims of sexual assault and sexual abuse, they don't Mm -hmm. talk about it when they're going through it, either because it's too traumatizing or because it's just such a a kind of world-altering stressor that they feel they don't even have the vocabulary to share it yet. Or in many times, they worry that if they share it, they will be kind of victimized yet again, that they may be judged somehow, for instance, or they won't receive the support they want or need. So sometimes you're right that these reports um, of of distress or the symptoms might not come out until quite a bit down the road. And our research isn't as good with those Mm. type of events because it's statistically more rare. We have much more research on how people cope with job stress or financial stress, because they're so common. And we are less good at getting at some of these statistically rare, but still incredibly powerful stressors and traumas that people can go through.
0: This has been on my mind a lot um, throughout the pandemic, because, you know, we rely on statistics like how many people died, or what's the infection rate. But a disaster of this magnitude, well, any disaster, I should say, but certainly one of this magnitude. Um, it has so many unmeasurables or difficult to measure aspects to it, and it strikes me that stress is going to be, be one of these key ones. I'm worried that we're going to have significant impacts that people don't even know how to make sense of yet, because they've made they've learned to cope in yes. this time, but that that stress is going to lead to longer term impacts that we don't have good ways to even think about at this point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of these new projects that I'm working on, actually, with Ashton Verdery and some other uh, bereavement researchers. We're trying to figure out a way, can we get some kind of national record of things like even multiple bereavements, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty rare that someone loses multiple family members. And we know that one early death, for instance, of, you know, mom or dad, for instance, can have long-term ramifications in some cases for mental health but often just for one's life trajectory whether one completes schooling for instance whether mm-hmm. one goes on and has kind of a, a solid work life for instance and imagine your child living in a community you know an, an urban community with very high rates of COVID who might lose grandma and an uncle and a sibling what is the long-term impact I think we can speculate that it would be devastating when one's whole community has been devastated and maybe cannot offer supports you're right. We don't have appropriate data yet, and I think it's incumbent on all of us, and again, the policymakers who support science and, and all of our nations, to help us get that data in real time, so we really can understand what the future may be like.
0: And um, this is like absolutely like life saving social science, as far as I'm concerned. What you're talking about here, um, just in the near term, I wonder what kind of again thinking about policy a little bit. What should policymakers be doing to address stress? I mean, what kinds of new policies, um, kinds of supports? I suppose money is always one form of answer, but it has to be spent in the right way to address these sort of accumulating stress impacts of the pandemic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think kind of economic ones are always important. Anything having to do with caregiving or family leave You know, we know that women have had a a major hit to their work lives, so support for caregivers who are either homeschooling or caring for aging parents or for dying spouses, any kind of caregiving supports are important. Um, But something a group of, of us are working on now is kind of bereavement policy. We don't have a national bereavement policy in the United States. We have very little in the way of supports, even for the basic funeral services that people might want to commemorate their loved one. Things like bereavement leave from work is something that there's no consistent policy on. Um, again, long-term supports. Um, we, we think about the emotional aspects of bereavement, which is clearly something that's profound, but let's say you're an older person who loses the adult child who the one is caring for you, or you're a child who loses the parent who supports you financially right? We tend not to think about bereavement. We just think about it in terms of sorrow and sadness, which absolutely is important. People are suffering. But these larger economic factors and social factors that can kind of undermine a family's cohesiveness in the long term isn't something that we often think about. But we often haven't had kind of mass death like this in the United States, and every community has been touched in some way.
0: I guess we have to go back to, we're talking about multiple bereavement. So a person might have experienced near-term death of several members of their family or close, um, close social ties. I don't know how far we have to go back to find something like that. I mean, World War II, I suppose, or maybe the Great Depression. It's a while back. It's not in recent cultural memory, is it?
1: No, not in my <clears throat> memory. At least not in kind of in the United States. There might be some parts of the world that have had sure. war there, for instance, right? Um, so traumas in other parts of the world, some natural disasters, 9-11, if you're from the New York area, um, that was, again, very, very powerful. Um, but really not since, you know, the epidemic of 1918, right, have every possible strata at every part of the country, right? Kind of natural disasters are very localized, and they're traumatizing for that local area. Um, but in terms of something of national scope, no, not since like a major war or, um, which for many of us is not our recent memory.
0: Kind of a research question for you, but how useful are are comparative studies there? I mean, um, for example, we could look to Southeast Asia uh, in the 1960s, so recent 1960s to 1980s to find those kind of cases where people certainly would have had multiple bereavement or more recently um, in Iraq or Afghanistan, um, we could find those uh, proxies What would be the limitations of doing that kind of work?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think there are absolutely lessons that we could learn there uh, in terms of, again, emotional responses. What kind of supports do people find most protective or not protective but I suspect there are also cultural differences and the United States and a lot of kind of wealthy capitalist nations have this very much again pull yourself up by your bootstraps we tend not to be community oriented we tend to focus on our own inner strength and coping so I think there would clearly be lessons learned from other communities but we might also find that the coping tactics or resources that are present in one Culture or society may not necessarily translate into this. Um, But what I do think a major lesson is that we could glean from any of those other countries is this question. How do you cope with a major stressor when the very people who you would rely on otherwise also are undergoing the stressor, right? Mm -hmm. You know, oftentimes we'll think, oh, someone's going through a divorce, for instance. Well, they can rely on their friends and peers. But imagine you're in a community where You lose your spouse or partner from COVID, your best friend does, and everybody in your community lost someone and they lost a job. Your support network might lack the physical or emotional wherewithal to give that support because they're also suffering. And I think that's what makes the COVID moment so different. And again, this concentration of grief and stress is much more so in some communities rather than others, right? Bringing it back up to the what we talked about in terms of nursing home communities right. and then low-income communities.
0: Almost up on time here with Deborah Carr, but I just wanted to ask you, you have such a rich um, research set of research projects underway, and I can only imagine that COVID is now, there aren't enough hours in the day, plus you're department chair. I am, um, department <laughs> chair
1: and in about 70 days.
0: So um, what's, what's the next thing or next couple of things on your research agenda here as you go? I don't want to start using post-COVID because we're not even there yet, yeah. but as we move into this next phase of the, of the pandemic.
1: Yeah, there are, there are a bunch of new projects I'm looking forward to launching. The two that I think that are most germane that I have my head in the most now, one is working with this team of bereavement researchers to try to come with some national data, really nationally representative data in the U.S. where we all are to find out how frequently are people bereaved of a close family member and of what causes, right? And what are the long-term impacts of having these multiple losses? Does it shape their adjustment and their attitudes? We're really trying to get those statistical snapshots because we think only when we have good data about how people cope with loss, can we then have good interventions and good policy. So that's one project that we're in the thick of and we're trying to get support so we can find a platform for doing a nationally representative survey. So there's that. Um, then with the, an, another project that's related, unrelated, uh, mostly related, with a team of BU researchers are trying to launch a project on flourishing, um, ideally, hopefully, with the support of the Templeton Foundation. And this notion of flourishing or doing well psychologically has been studied in well-off communities, and we're asking how do people flourish and find joy or happiness or optimism when they are living under conditions of extreme adversity? It could be communities with multiple bereavement, which is one of my interests. It could be people who are incarcerated, those grappling with their own chronic illness, and then also kind of geopolitical consequences of communities that are refugees, for instance, And what community resources and policies might people draw on, not just to survive, basically to get by and to sidestep things like depression and anxiety, but to actually have a rewarding emotional and social life with members of their community.
0: Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Please join me tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll be talking about disability justice and COVID-19 with Lakshmi Fjord, Elaine Gerber, and Lenore Manderson. That's going to be a great conversation. And just thanking my guest today, Deborah Carr, for this discussion about um, aging populations and stress and COVID-19. Um, Deborah, you're, you're such a great advocate for the power of this research, and I just I wish you the best of luck with the next phase of the work, and I hope you'll come back and talk to us again in a few months and update us on your new findings.
1: Oh, I'm happy to. Great, and thank you so much for, for talking. I've very much enjoyed this conversation.
0: Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, 5.30 p.m.